0: Good morning. Well, I have to confess, you know my mind, those of you who know me for a long period of time, and titles really do start working around, some of which I can share and some of which I can't. But uh, I thought about, in addition to Ehud's gut reaction, uh, a title, No Guts, No Gory. I also thought about one, it would be uh, Eglon. How to Lose 20 Pounds in 5 Seconds. <laughs> probably none of those would fly, so we'll just stay with what I've got. We do have a text that presents us with some challenges, as you know. And uh, some, it's probably these kind of challenges which keep a lot of preachers from the Old Testament and particularly from the book of Judges. But the text seems to deal with life in a way that's far removed from us. I mean, when is the last time that any of you had any dealings with an ox goad? In fact, probably most of us have never seen or hardly heard of an ox goad. Apparently it's a... A, a, a prod on the end of a pole. You could imagine if it's used for goading the ox to make him go. It's sort of like a long-distance spur. <laughs> it gets on him with a long pole. But let's face it, none of us really find that familiar turf. So it seems like it's the long ago and the far away. The text seems to have excessive violence, and we want it, we want to deal with that as we move along. The dots don't always seem to connect. I mean, here you have these stories, which, in some people's minds, almost are randomly tossed together. Uh, you have the account at the beginning of our text about the men of Israel giving their daughters to the to the sons of, of the Canaanites and whatever, and then you read the story about Othniel, uh, who we've met before, and then you come to this thing with with Ehud. And Eglon and all the grime and the gore of that story. And then you end up with Shamgar and a poor guy gets one verse. Ehud gets 19 for running a guy through with a sword. And Shamgar gets one verse, one sentence. And you're saying, wait a minute, what is this? Why, why is the text put together in that way? Well, I would assure you it's not random and it certainly is important. I was thinking about this fact, these, these texts, and I was, I, I know this sounds crazy, but I was thinking about Goldilocks and the Three Bears. And, and here you've got these three texts, and you read the text about Othniel, and, and it's like she's eating the porridge and saying, too bland, too bland, not enough detail. And then you read the story of Ehud, and you say, too spicy, too spicy, too hot for me. And then you read the one about Shamgar, and you say, too little. There's not enough there to even get one bite out of this thing. They're all there, and we're going to try and put all that together. This is a test for us. When when we say, as we do, as Scripture says, all Scripture is inspired and profitable. We'll hasten to Ephesians, and we'll hasten to some other books, Romans in the New Testament. But we're going to tiptoe around judges if we can get away with it. We're just going to sort of pass it by and hope nobody calls that text to our attention. It says, what do you do with this? So our message and our, our, our text is a test for us, I think, of our own professions of Scripture being not only inspired, but being profitable for us. If we believe that, then this text is relevant and profitable And it's our task to find out how that is so. Fortunately, the Spirit of God is at work to enable us to do so. The key, I think, is to answer the questions that the text raises. One one of the ways in which I go about studying the scriptures is I read the text and I say, why in the world did it say this? Why did this happen before this? Why was this included in this particular context? And you put those questions down and those questions are the are the hooks, as it were, that God is using to get our attention. And the answer to those questions are the key to understanding the text and its application, at least as far as I'm concerned. So my goal and our goal in this message is going to be to find out what's the meaning of the text and what's its message for Christians today. I believe that there is meaning and message for us. Now, let's look at verses 5 through 11. Israel's sin and God's deliverer. I I have this uh, title, Marriage and Morality, Apostasy is a Matter of Give and Take. And by that I mean it's a matter of giving your daughters (laughs) and, and, and taking their sons. It's interesting to me that nowhere in the Old Testament does it ever talk about Uh, The intermingling and uh, racially intermingling of Israel with with Canaanites or others other than by Israelites giving their daughter to Canaanites and the Canaanites having their sons take Israelite daughters. It didn't say anything about they give their sons to the Canaanites. They give their daughters to them. And by the way, you remember all the way back in Genesis when uh, uh, Tamar was was forcibly taken by Shechem and and then the deal was offered, you know, you will we'll all be happy together if you just give us your daughters and 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 our sons will take them, we'll intermarry, you remember, and all that stuff. And it all starts there. And and then you remember that uh, they the, the people of Shechem said, and then we'll have all their land and cattle and we'll have them because we're intermarried with them. Sort of like the mafia, I suppose. Anyway. Here you have this giving and taking and the apostasy that results. And so God is angry with them. He gives Israel over to Cush and Rishithim, and he's king. Now, I don't know why the New American Standard, maybe it doesn't like to pronounce the words either, says that he is the king of Aram Naharim. Now, I'm not going to go down this trail, but it is interesting that you have this kind of rhyme. Cush and Aram Naharim. Naharim means two rivers, so it's Aram of two rivers. And you can see that that could be the place where two rivers divide. Uh, The the word uh, uh, Naharim means double evil, two evils. And so here you have this king who's doubly evil, who's by this town that's called Two Rivers. And and, uh, Davis, one of my favorite commentators, says... He really thinks that there is a play on words going on here and that that the writer may well be using sarcasm in the use of these. Now, I have to admit, I can identify with that. I've always throughout my life, I've always named people other names than what they were. And in particular, like college presidents and seminary presidents, Dr. Walford was Papa John. His brother, Dr. Evans was J. Elwood. Evans was Big Red. I just I don't know why I just did it. Uh, and, and so I could understand how that could happen. But it seems to me that that's kind of an inside joke for Israelites. And so I'm going to just pass by and not get into the name thing too much other than to say God gave them over to uh, the, uh, the king of, of Aram Naharim as a judgment in his anger. It, isn't it interesting that in him doing that it would not be readily apparent to anybody on the outside? In other words, from the outside eye it just looks like they're more powerful and, and Israel's lost. The reality is God strengthened that king, as he will strengthen the king of, of Moab as a judgment against his people for their sin. Okay, so where are we here? Israel cries out in verse 9, uh, and we've already said, I made a point last week of, of saying that the groaning was not a groaning of repentance, but a groan of, of pain. Uh, most of the uh, the students of scripture that I have regard for feel that the word cry out is the same way, that it is an outward cry. And it may even be a cry to God for help, but that it's not probably not a cry of repentance. Let me see if I can give you an illustration of that for our own lives. Have you ever had a circumstance in your life where where something just goes really wrong and you cry out to God in prayer, but it isn't? probably isn't repentance it's just saying lord i'm hurting help me make me feel better you know do whatever it is that i need done so the crying out does not appear to be the crying out of repentance in verse nine but god raises up othniel as the deliverer and and i believe there's a connection with verses five through seven and that's why i arranged the text the the text to break at verse five Because in verses 5 through 7, we see this thing of the Israelites giving their daughters, right, to Canaanites. And in that process, there is this blending of the two cultures. And there is the apostasy and the falling away from God and turning to idols. We will remember in the story that we've already read in Judges chapter 1, and we also saw it in Joshua chapter 15, that it was uh, that uh, Othniel is the one who takes Caleb's challenge, and and uh, goes after the enemy and and wins Aksah. Uh, Caleb's daughter for his wife. And, and it just seems to me that when we find Othniel as the first judge, it's kind of set in contrast. In other words, here is Israel in their unbelief and their apostasy and this swapping of wives uh, across the, the, the forbidden line at that point in time. And and here is Othniel, a man who is married to an Israelite girl. And you say to yourself, boy, that's the kind of guy that ought to be the, the judge now. Let's take a, a little bit of a look at, uh, at Othniel in terms of what it tells us about him. It says in verse 10, The Spirit of God came upon him, and then it says he judged Israel, he went to war, and he won. And that Israel now had rest for 40 years, and, and then Othniel dies, and, and it's, a, it's a new ball game. Not a whole lot of details, right? Not a whole lot of details, uh, and, and probably most people would like more. Well, what we know and don't know about Othniel. We know his past from Joshua chapter 15. We know about him taking the challenge to, to defeat the, the, the Canaanites and to get the, the uh, daughter of Caleb for his wife. We know what our text tells us here, that the Spirit of God came upon him, that God raised him up, that he went and led Israel into war and that they won and gave uh, the Israelites peace for that period of time. But we don't know any more details. We don't know about the wars. We don't know about the victories. All of those things which would make it kind of exciting to us, we don't have. It's sort of like me going home and saying to my wife, oh, by the way, so-and-so had her baby. And I walk away. And Jeanette says, well, wait, wait a minute. What, what was it, a boy or a girl? Hmm. I don't remember. <laughs> was I supposed to find out that? Well, what was its name? I, I, I don't know that either. How big was it? When was it born? All those details women love. Men are just happy with, you know, the baby's born. That's the kind of account we get here. But, but there's a sense in which you kind of wringing in your hand saying, come on, come on. Let's have some more detail. Well, it isn't there. Davis in his commentary says the problem with Othniel Oath- is that he is so colorless. Now, I want to challenge that. I don't think that's true at all. I think that Oath a hero. I think he is so colorful that if we told the full details of the story, our attention would be on him more than it would be on God. See, the point of the story is God put his spirit upon Othniel. He raised Othniel up to lead Israel into battle and to win those battles and to give his people rest. But it's God who is our focus, not him. And so if we made a lot of him, then we're making less of God. So I would contend that he's not a colorless guy at all. The author does not want to glamorize him in a way that would be inappropriate. Okay, Ehud's gut reaction. Here we go. This is what you've all been waiting for, so we might as well just get there and get to it. Notice the size of the account. Uh, I I did a little math, and and, uh, I'm not really that great at math or that excited, but if my calculations are right, 70% of our text is Ehud-centered. 70% of our text, 19 verses. That should say to us that the author somehow wants us to fix our attention here. While we got too few details in, in some people's minds about Othniel, we probably got more details than we really wanted to know. Do you really want to see a description of that sword going all the way in there and the fat closing over it and the point coming out, you know, the other end? And you're thinking, ugh, yuck. I don't really think I want to know about that. Well, the author thought that we should. Our task is to discover why the author thinks we need all those details. Notice in verse 12, the Israelites sin again. (laughs) Remember, there's that whole thing in chapter 2 about the cycles of sin, and it's just like this is the second verse of the same song, and there's going to be many more verses to come. So God strengthens Eglon. And in that way brings judgment against Israel. Sometimes God's judgment is not direct, it's indirect. And God made it clear in Deuteronomy chapter 28 in another text, if you turn from me, I'm not going to give you victory over your enemies, I'm going to give your enemies victory over you. And so God strengthens the opponent so that he brings his discipline upon his people. And then he raises up Ehud as the deliverer. By the way, that expression, raises up, when he's speaking about Ehud, it's almost identical with the expression that he used of raising up Othniel. So while there is a contrast in one sense of these two fellows, I think, there is also a comparison in the sense that God raised both of them up to serve as a deliverer for Israel. So what do we know about Ehud? We know he's a Benjamite because the text tells us he is. We know that he's left-handed. Now, if you read in Judges chapter 20, you know that a lot of Benjamites were left-handed guys. Those southpaws, remember it says that they could do, take the sling and they could get a hair, a hit a hair at so many paces? These guys were good shots, which makes me wonder, why didn't he use a sling? <laughs> but never mind, he's, he's at least a, a, a Benjamite. He's the bag man. That is, he is the payoff guy. He's been selected to take the tribute, which is paid every year, to Eglon. He is the one who's selected to to oversee that payment. Now, if it's agricultural goods, and it would seem to be, then he had other helpers. And remember, it says in the text that he sent them away after the payment had been made. But he's sort of the point man in terms of the payoff that is to be made. And he's packing heat. Now, uh, uh, this is a concealed weapon uh, from everything I can tell. Certainly he's not going to go in packing this honking big sword into the presence of their enemy with the secret service uh, guarding uh, him in that way. So he's got this 18-inch or so, maybe a little less, sword that doesn't apparently have that protector around it, you know, that kind of protects your hand, and that's what allows the sword to go all the way in and through. Now, I know you really wanted to know that, but, but that is what we're told. And he's wearing uh, that uh, as a concealed weapon, uh, so far as I can tell. How long he's been wearing that, I'm not so sure about Nothing is said about the spirit of the Lord. Nothing is said here about the spirit of the Lord coming upon him. I'm not saying it didn't happen. I'm saying the author chooses to contrast the spirit of the Lord coming upon Othniel uh, and and giving us very little detail with not mentioning the spirit of the Lord here. uh, And yet we get more detail perhaps than we want. So I want to talk about... The events of the story, and and I want to I'm going to give you two versions that have the same facts. And the reason I'm doing this is because I think most of us have what I call the pious bias, and we want to assume the best. And so we read these things in the light of what we would wish would happen, whether or not they did. And so we have certain details that were given. Those are the main emphasis but all of us are going to read a certain story, and so let me give you two versions of it to give you sort of the wide range of how this story could have worked out. Here's the good guy Ehud story. The good guy story is that Ehud was a, a godly man, and that for a number of years he is agonized about Israel's oppression by Eglon and, and uh, the Moabites. And so he determines that God wants him to do something about it, and he creates this uh, special sword as the weapon of choice that he's going to use and that he's going to have that as a concealed weapon. And somehow he looks to God to enable him to to make use of that. So he then is appointed. Maybe he seeks out the appointment to be the bag man so that he can go do the payoff. And when he goes to the payoff, he's wearing, as you know, he's left-handed. So that would mean, you know, you're going to reach for, your, reach for your weapon over here. Say if you're right-handed, so you're going to reach over here. So if you're going to frisk a guy in terms of doing the weapon search, you're going to look over here, aren't you? Because most people are right-handed. And so they're not looking over here. And because that's one of those specially made swords... Uh, then you're not going to be, it, it's not going to make a big protrusion. And so it's kind of, if you're wearing loose garments, it's going to kind of be in there and, you know, nobody ever sees it. So he wears this weapon with a specific task, goal in mind, that he's going to go and do uh, Eglon in. And and so he pays him off. Remember, now they've done the payoff at, at Gilgal and, and there at the location where Eglon has his palace And now he's on his way out. And for some reason, circumstances haven't allowed him to 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 use his knife against Eglon. And somehow when he gets there to the idols that are mentioned twice in our text, the idols that are there, then uh, then somehow he, he says uh, to Eglon, oh, there was one more thing I wanted to say. So he goes back and Eglon's kind of disarmed, so to speak, because he's, he's already had dealings with him and he's already been frisked. And, and so it looks like everything's well uh, going well. And so he, he then gets with him privately and runs him through and then, and then escapes. That's the good guy's story. Here's the other story. When, when I was teaching in prison... We had a guy that, that used to sit over, it would be right, I don't want point anybody, but over on this side of the class. And he was really a, a quiet, likable guy. And one day he didn't show up for class. And, and I asked, and he was in the hole. Uh, and the reason was that they found a shiv on him. He had made a weapon, and he had it stashed away and hidden. And it wasn't that this guy was violent, it was that he was threatened. And he was so intimidated that he was carrying a weapon just to protect, to protect his own life. So let's just suppose that for a moment that Ehud's a scrawny little guy and everybody always picks on him. Let's, I mean, we don't know anything about him, so it could be true. I told you this is the other extreme. And, and so he carries a concealed weapon, weapon with him at all times for his protection. And who knows with, uh, with what's going on with the Moabites and whatever, there may be other reasons to be carrying a concealed weapon so that he gets tagged as the one, maybe to his chagrin, where he has to go do the payoff. And so he makes the payoff to the, to the king, and he's now leaving, and he's on his way back out, and he's there at, uh, at Gilgal, and you remember Gilgal's the place where Israel crossed, had their circumcision, observed the, uh, the Passover, and, and built uh, this memorial of twelve stones. And let's just suppose that as he's coming out, it says to us that he passed by the idols. And, of course, those idols were there either because the Israelites had already started worshiping them or because the Moabites brought them with them. But, but here you are at Gilgal, one of the most sacred places, by the way. Gilgal was the place from which the angel of the Lord came to Bochum to rebuke Israel, uh, as we read in chapter 2. So here you are at Gilgal. He comes out and away, and, and, and he looks over here, and here are these idols. He looks over here, and here are these 12 stones. And he says to himself, enough, enough of all this. He turns back, and he says to the king, who apparently is looking over the palace wall, and he says, oh, I forgot something, O oh king, uh, that I need to tell you. There's something private that really needs to be discussed. And, and so Eglon says, okay, everybody, scram, and he goes back up, and and. Uh, And Eglon just seems to set the scene because now he's all alone with Eglon. He says, "I've got a message for 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 you from the Lord." Some people say he rose out of respect. I have a feeling he knew something was up. And and anyway, he gets himself in the perfect position to run him through. So now Ehud runs him through, and here you have here's a guy that's got secret service agents all around him, folks. He's in enemy territory and and he wants to protect uh, he they want to protect their their king Eglon and yet somehow all the secret services out having coffee and then they they uh they they're looking and they're waiting for him to come out and he's up here in in this in this private cool room okay and and they come to the conclusion that uh he's busy going to the bathroom Uh, Now, I'm going to get a little graphic with you, but but I want want to do this because I believe that the text is trying to make a very, very clear point to us. Why would they conclude that? He's in the cool room. Look, it's hot there, folks. It's just just up off the Dead Sea, just up off the Jordan in that valley. It's hot. And so they have this cool room, which would have this this sort of uh, uh, lattice work, but the whole idea is so the breezes will blow through it. He didn't have air conditioning other than these breezes that blow through. So Ehud has gone out, he has shut the gate, and we're not sure exactly about all the logistics. Some say you can lock it without a key, but you can't unlock it without a key. So Ehud gets out, and he's making his escape now, out past the idols that are there, And, and he's going to go gather his army, But while he's in the process of gathering his forces, there has to be a delay. And so here are the Secret Service. And they keep looking at that locked door. And he's been run through. He's been disemboweled. And he is a very big man. What do you think it would smell like? What do you think? Please, I'm not trying to be overly gross. What do you think it would smell like? As the odor drifted down to those people... No wonder they said, he's going to the bathroom. In some ways, they were exactly right. He had cut him wide open. And so that smell was what kept them thinking, well, he's just having a hard day and we just got to give this guy time. And so they wait until it's just absolutely, the text says, just embarrassing. But finally they conclude, we can't wait any longer. Well, they've waited long enough. They go, they find him dead. And, and before uh, they can muster the troops, and you can imagine the consternation of having your king dead, now Ehud comes down, and he comes down. To this place, and he's going to capture the Fords. Now, I've got some. Uh, I, I don't. I told Hampton to watch out, and I said, Hampton, I got to tell you something about the, uh, about the the graphics that I'm going to show here in a minute. And he says, What? That you're not going to follow him again? <laughs> I said, No, not that. So I went out on Google uh, uh, Earth and downloaded my. Somebody up there with me doing my pictures? Ah, yes, Google Earth. See, here's this is looking from the the uh, d- from the Dead Sea, which is just out of our line of sight, looking straight north up the uh, Jordan Valley. So while the yellow line is actually a border line, it's it's also following along the Jordan River. It's, ah, thank you, and you can see I may have Gilgal a little bit off. But when the Israelites came over from the right-hand side, crossed the Jordan, then they would have gone to Gilgal and camped there. Jericho is uh, just on the edge, literally a suburb, if you would, of Jericho. We don't know exactly where it is. Now, let's look at the next slide. Okay, this is now turning toward the Mediterranean, and now you can see the Jordan running up to our right. We're looking at Jericho, and if you look up to your left. Do you see Jerusalem? What we need what we need to see is that Jericho is the gateway to Jerusalem. In fact, when you go up from the from the Dead Sea and you go up through that that valley, there are these these incredible cliffs and whatever. And there are some uh, uh, palaces and stuff, monasteries and stuff that are built along the side. But Gilgal is it's sort of the gateway to Jericho. Jericho is the gateway now up to uh, Jerusalem. Let's look at the next slide. I'm trying to remember what I've got there. In our next slide. There we go. All right. This is looking now at, from Jericho, and you see how the mountainous uh, territory is there? If you want to get to, Jer- to Jerusalem, you don't just take any, any path. You've got to follow your way and wind your way up the mountains. Okay, next slide. This is actually a picture of Jericho itself, and you can get a sense of what the hills behind Jericho uh, look like. And now I think my last one, if I'm correct. This is the Jordan. Now, what you need to understand is this. I think if my math is right, it's about 10% of the volume of, of water flow now as it once was. That's because they're using the, the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River for irrigation and, and the tributaries that go into it. And so the Jordan River today is not what the Jordan River was then. Now, usually when you think of the Jordan River, you see that muddy little thing, you know, that's kind of, frankly kind of ugly. People are getting baptized in it and whatever. And, and, you know, it's kind of they've got this perfect little spot for it, but it looks so calm and whatever. But the reality is thinking about where the Jordan is. And remember that the Moabites and the, and the enemy is on the other side, the eastern side of the Jordan. They have occupied on the west side, so for them to flee for their lives, what do they have to do? Cross the Jordan, right? And so here you have Ehud who comes and stations himself, and it must have been during the time when the waters are, are nearly in flood states. You didn't just wade across the Jordan River. So now you have the enemy bottled up, and literally they kill all of the enemy, and not one of them escapes, is what the text says. My point is this. All of these circumstances are God's providential dealings. Nobody could have orchestrated these events in a human way to make it come out exactly the way that they did. Jump to Shamgar for a second now. Back to the the script on the screen, I hope. Shamgar goads the enemy in verse 31. One verse, one sentence. What do we know? We know his name and his father's name. We know that he's a deliverer. We know that he killed 600 Philistines and that his weapon was an ox code. That's what we know, right? Period. Uh, there's a lot of things that we don't know. We don't know his origin. For instance, what tribe did he come from? Uh, there is a fair bit of speculation that he wasn't an Israelite at all, but that he was actually of Gentile origin. That wouldn't be highly unusual, and it may have been the case here. Did he win those, uh, take those lives in one battle or many? Did he judge Israel? If so, for how long? No record of how long Israel would have had peace. What happened in the battle? How would you kill 600 people with an ox goad? And why is this thing told with such brevity? All of those things are there for us to ponder. Now, let's go back, and I'm going to conclude by trying to draw this together, starting with Othniel. Why so little detail about Othniel? Well, we've read about him earlier, so it's not as though somehow we're coming across him for the first time. But it seems to me that the way in which this is presented, Othniel is sort of the ideal deliverer. That is, what we have seen of him, we know that, he, uh, that his origin is one of faith and courage. He is the kind of man we would love to see as Israel's judge. Not a Samson, not some of these other characters that are gonna get raised up. This guy is a man's man. He's he's my kind of deliverer. If I'm gonna pick a deliverer, this is my kind of guy. He's the ideal deliverer as, as I see, and God has raised him up, and the Spirit of the Lord has empowered him. It doesn't tell us how he did it. Do you know why? Because if they had been publishing books in those days, there would have been the book by Othniel. How to win the victory over the enemy. And everybody would be out trying to imitate exactly what he did as though it was his methods that somehow were really the key. The the seven keys of leadership, according to Othniel. We'd be selling those books like hotcakes. What we need to know, what God tells us is this. It is God who raised him up, and it is God who gave him the power. And that is everything we need to know. We don't need to know his methods, because we're going to find out there's a whole batch of methods that are different. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, remember in chapter 2, Who is sufficient for these things? And then he talks about the Spirit of God that's been given to us. He makes us adequate. And then he says... We have this treasure in clay pots. And the reason is that the glory goes to God. Judges is not a book aimed at focusing our attention on men. It's a book that's aimed at focusing our attention on God. And that's what the Othniel text does. Now let's talk about Ehud. Why the emphasis on Ehud and the abundance of goriness that is there? I'd like to suggest to you that God works in two different ways. That God may work in the spectacular ways where his spirit comes upon some, uh, somebody and where miraculous things happen and everybody understands this is God. I don't believe that that happens as often as God's providential work. When I read the story of Ehud and Eglon, I see all of these circumstances. I mean, if you were looking at probabilities, the circumstances that Eglon would send his secret service out of the room, the, the circumstances that a man armed with an 18-inch sword would get past security, the circumstances of all the things that came to pass, they're impossible odds. The point is, God is every but, uh, a bit as, as much as in control In the circumstances with Ehud as he is in the circumstances with Othniel. Even though it's a strange and bizarre story, God has orchestrated those events so that something happens. Eglon is killed. The Moabites are defeated. The Israelites have peace. And in fact, it's a pretty long period of peace that comes about as a result of what God does. I think that God is saying something to us that is critically important, and that is God is in control even when we don't know it. Now, think about that. God had strengthened the hand of Eglon and Moab and his cohorts. Remember earlier on, it said, that when the people that, that Moab is af- associating with, when they heard about Israel, they shook in their boots because of what God had done for the Israelites in Egypt. Now, all of a sudden, they're emboldened and they're empowered. And we look, and if you were an Israelite in those days, you'd say, Oh, no, what is God doing? Where is God? And our text says he is in every single detail of this story. He is the one who is sovereignly in charge. Now, I'm kind of cutting down through my notes, so I don't know what's going to happen up there or up there, but I'm just telling you what's going to happen right here. And that is this. We live in a time where we're looking at circumstances and we're saying, oh, look at this stock market. Look at our economy. Look at this and look at that. Look at what's happening. You know, here are these guys getting together that are talking about using nuclear weapons against the United States and all of that. And we look at what's happening in Washington, D.C., and we're wringing our hands and whatever. Let me say something to you, folks. This text tells us God is in control. He is in control in terms of who is over us at this moment. He is in control as to when He takes him out or does not. He's in control in terms of all of the international politics and and all of the things that are going on in North Korea and Iran and all of those. He's in control because He is bringing about what He covenanted to do. And what He covenanted to do was to save His people and to begin to work and restore the nation Israel. That's what God promised to do. And this text tells us, and the reason it goes into such detail, it wants us to see there are God's fingerprints all over this. But unless this text told us so, we'd never have known. Would we? We wouldn't have known. Apart from the fact that Scripture tells us it is God who is in control. Okay, I know I'm really jumping. Shamgar. What about Shamgar? Why the brevity of that account? It tells us everything we need to know, and it narrows it down to one verse and one sentence so we don't get lost in the details. What is it that is unique about the story of Shamgar? The ox goad, right? The ox goad. Now, let me remember the setting. Here are the Israelites who were not able to capture the plains because of. Iron chariots, the technology of war. Oh, poor Israel, they don't have high-tech weapons. What will we do against the enemy? God says, um, anybody got an ox code? 600 people with an ox code, folks. That's pretty incredible. And, what it, and by the way, think about it. I've got it up on your screen if you're, if you're seeing it. Think of the weapons that are employed in Judges. A hidden sword... That's with, uh, with our friend Ehud, an ox goad, a tent peg, and a hammer. Woo-hoo! Now there's a really lethal weapon, isn't it? How many people would have thought that? Horns and torches with Gideon. A millstone, remember that gets dropped by some lady on a guy's head. A jawbone of a donkey. And a collapsing building. It's not high tech, folks, but there is one thing about it. God used it. See, sometimes we think that we've got to have all the technology and all the resources, and we don't have all these things, so what are we going to do? Well, God will probably find an ox goad amongst us. And he may even find a jerk like Ehud or some other guy that he uses for his glory. Look at this statement that that, uh, comes from Matthew Henry. I love it. And basically you could caption it this way. It's not about men and it's not about weapons. It's all about God. He says, see here, one, that God can make those eminently serviceable to his glory and his church and his church is good, whose extraction, education and employment are very mean and obscure. (laughs) Paul says that he uses the things that are weak and foolish to confound the wisdom of the wise. Anyway. He has the residue of the, he that has the residue of the spirit could, when he pleased, make plowmen judges and generals, and fishermen apostles. It is no matter how weak the weapon is if God direct and strengthen the arm. An ox goad, when God pleases, shall do more than Goliath's sword. And sometimes He chooses to work by such unlikely means that the excellency of His power may appear to be of God. Is that not what our text is saying to us? Can we not see beyond the ox code to say, it is God. So fill in something else for ox code that doesn't sound very powerful to you. God can and often does use it. Two lessons not up on your notes. A lesson to the oppressed. God will bring judgment on the oppressor. You remember the story of Habakkuk? Habakkuk is hollering to God about the sins of Israel, and God says, be cool, I got it covered. Babylonians are going to come and clean house. He says, wait, wait, they're so nasty and awful. They're sort of like the uh, folks that uh, Jonah didn't want to come, the Assyrians didn't want them to come and take over Israel. And God says to him, look, I will use the Babylonians as my rod of discipline, but I will deal with them. I will deal with them. And so there is a message here. And you, know, you and I can talk about, oh, this is so violent, this sticking a sword and running it all the way through. Do you know what's happening to Christians in Africa today because they profess in their faith? Their heads are being chopped off. Their, their, their limbs are being cut up. This is, this is mild compared to what some Christians are suffering today. And God is going to make it right. Revelation chapter 6. You remember the story where the martyrs are crying out and they're saying, "How long, God? How long before you vindicate the blood of your people that have been shed?" God says, "Relax. It's coming soon." Revelation chapter 16 comes along, and we read when judgment comes. By the way, if you want to read gore, read the story when our God, uh, when God comes down and he talks about the feast of the birds. And, and, and all the blood and guts of the enemies, and, and blood's going to be up to the bridles of the horses. Hey, that's gory stuff. Revelation 16, verse 4. And the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous art thou who art and who wast a holy one, because thou didst judge these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink. They deserve it. Now, folks, let's not get wimpy about what's happening and what has happened to the people of God. They deserve wrath. And if you get squeamish about some guy getting run through, then you're losing your perspective about how God hates sin and how he deals with sin. By the way, there's a message to the oppressor as well as to the oppressed. And that is, mess with my people and you mess with me. You say, why this text? It just seems so irrelevant to me. Does it? This text tells us that anybody who, who oppresses God's people and finds pleasure in it is going to face the wrath of God. Seems to me there's some questions floating around today about whether we stand behind Israel or not whether we just turn our backs and just leave Israel to the wolves, so to speak. Does this text not say something to us about where our allegiance and and where we ought to be lining up in this whole thing? It seems to me, it shouts to us that the principle is still the same. Now, I know you guys, if you're looking up there for my notes, I don't know where they are either or where I am. But I want to say this last one thing. If we think... This is too harsh. This is God's judgment. It's not just God's salvation, it is God's judgment on his enemies. Maybe you've forgotten about how violent hell is. This is just a sample of what God's eternal wrath will be like on all those who reject him and his son. And you want an example of violence? Then you look at the cross. You want violence? That's what man's sin deserves. Is it not? That's what Jesus had to suffer because that's the penalty we deserve. He experienced hell on the cross of Calvary. And the joy of Christians is that we can say, my sins are no more. That's what the gospel is about. God's judgment toward sin and the sinner has been appeased in Jesus. These deliverers don't last, folks. Their deliverance doesn't last 40 years, 80 years. (laughs) You know, take 100 years. It doesn't last because these deliverers can't change men's hearts. And that's why it keeps going from bad to worse. The deliverer who's come is the one who lives forever. And his righteousness and his judgment are perfect. And he's coming again to make things right. And it will be ugly. It will be ugly for those who reject him, but it's a joy for those who trust in him. Father, thank you for this text. Help us to listen carefully to its words. If there's someone here this morning who has never trusted in Jesus Christ, who thinks that their goodness is enough, help them to see the wrath that awaits for those who reject Jesus. For those of us who are believers, Help us to see that you use weak and foolish things to achieve your purposes and that you will vindicate the wrongs that have been committed against your people. Give us courage and boldness to proclaim Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen.